You are Locked On Bucks, your daily podcast on the Milwaukee Bucks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Backs him down. Giannis into the lane. Giannis spinning. Welcome to Locked on Bucks. I'm Eric Name, Milwaukee Bucks reporter at ESPN Milwaukee. Also, Milwaukee Bucks reporter at ESPN Arkdale, um, which I found out is a place. Um, was not 100% sure of it. Put it in Google Maps, zoomed out a couple times, and it exists. It is uh, pretty well in the center of the state, uh, a little bit north of, it looks like, Wisconsin Dells uh, to the east of of toma um it's there though uh so you know i'm espn wisconsin repping so espn arkdale it is today uh thanks for the suggestion uh for that one to uh jihu uh for that suggestion so that's what i'm repping as my espn affiliate for the day espn arkdale joining me as always is my good friend and the founder of brewhoop.com frank madden frank how are you i'm doing well eric uh my house is uh I don't want to say recovered from the Rockets last last night to the Warriors. Because um, how could it that, be? You can't you can't actually <laughs> recover from a loss like that. Yeah, you know I I have to say my wife took it in stride. Um, you know I think when Chris Paul was ruled out, we we kind of felt like this was going to be, you know, an uphill battle no matter what happened in the first half and like clockwork every third quarter has gone against the the Rockets in the series seemingly, and uh, certainly. The third quarter, um, in particular, was uh, was a huge turnaround yet again. And um, I know we'll talk maybe a little bit more about the Rockets and their identity, and um, you know what all this means for you know just general kind of team building. How you think about you know teams and and how you build a, a culture and things like that, because that's a, obviously I think a huge talking point for the Bucks as we enter the Mike Budenholzer era. But um, you know, I, I thought it was obviously a, a really interesting series, and I think just you know, as not just as a somebody who wanted the Rockets to win, but just as a fan of the NBA, it would have been great, obviously, if Chris Paul could have been, you know, at least able to play in Game mm-hmm. Seven um, to feel like you know we saw both these teams at their best. Throw Andre Andre Godal in there too, sure, whatever. But you know, again, I mean, the Warriors had four All Stars, the Rockets lost one of their two. Um, you know, to to for the Rockets to even lead have that lead early uh, have a chance in this game in spite of just an incredible cold streak um you know it says a lot especially about their defense right i mean i think that's probably really maybe the revelation of the series was um the rockets defense and to some extent also the warriors defense because um you know again these two teams known for offense but certainly they showed that that they're much more than that and um, the intensity and effort from both sides really was impressive. If you know, if not, maybe the <laughs> maybe the execution and focus offensively left much to be desired. But certainly defensively, I think both these teams showed a lot. And you know, as we talked about the other night, gave I think offer some interesting ideas and, and talking points for teams like the Bucks and, and anyone who wants to contend moving forward. 
We'll talk a little bit uh, about that series at the end of the podcast, but uh, one thing I don't often do is toss out our Twitter accounts at Eric underscore name and at F Madden NBA. And I wanted to do it tonight because I didn't want anyone to think I was Eric Jr. Um, because <laughs> that might have been a problem uh, for me. And we're recording this uh, I, an hour or so after this story broke, but uh, Ben Dietrich at the ringer uh, also contributor to the New York times and uh, was originally at Grantland, I believe uh, wrote an article about, about entitled the curious case of Brian Colangelo and the secret Twitter account. And I will tell you, you should absolutely read it uh, because uh, it's fascinating. Um, It's, it's just kind of a strange read and throughout all of it, I kept kind of thinking, is this an actual story? Is this a parody of like what Twitter has become in 2018? Uh, just because, I mean, I've dealt with accounts like uh, Eric Jr. and some of the other ones on Twitter, as I'm sure you have as well, Frank, where, uh, you know, people claim to know stuff and they've uh, been able to find this thing and you should ask about this and do all this stuff. And it is just the most insane story I think I've ever read. And you were mentioning like you got done with it. You're like, this must be an April fool's joke. And then you realized it's May 29th. So it can't be. Um, and I, I don't know. We, we can get into this, but initial reaction for me is what the hell did I just read and how on earth is this possible? And I'm once I'm through with it, I think it is possible. Like, I think this is really what happened. And I don't even know how I got here. Yeah. And I mean, to set the scene a little bit, if you haven't read this, this story by Ben Dietrich, the, the basic summary, and you can fill in if I miss anything, Eric, is that a, a nameless source, um, provided a tip to uh, Ben Dietrich, who, who is a Sixers, I don't know if you, if you call him a Sixers blogger, but he's part of sort of Sixers Twitter, um, has written for, you know, various sites over the years. Um, and, you know, like many, has probably been pretty critical of Brian Colangelo. Um, and someone alerted Ben Dietrich to the presence of not one, but I guess five Twitter accounts, which this person who alerted Ben Dietrich to this did so based on essentially essentially some kind of algorithms comparing similarities in posting patterns, um, language usage, um, and, and basically like similarities in who you follow and who follows you and things like that, which again, I mean, a lot of that is public domain, I think at this point. Um, but the fascinating thing with this is if you look at all these things that have been tweeted, the similarities, you know, it's one thing for five accounts to kind of generally follow similar patterns and say, you know, oh, say positive things about a general manager or negative things about, you know, Sam Yankee or whatever it might be, right? I mean, certainly there's some people in Sixers Twitter that feel that way, of course, right? I mean, Bucks Twitter, you can probably find somebody who, you know, thinks they should trade Giannis or whatever, like, and that person's an idiot, but, you know, whatever. Like, I'm sure there's that person out there or there's, you know, people who have even crazier takes than just not liking Brian Colangelo, which, you know, again, is whatever. Um, And so essentially this this 
I don't know how it was. It sounds like months of observation of these accounts led to Ben Dietrich finally asking the Sixers about whether or not, not all of them, but a few of them, at least a couple of them, were in fact Brian Colangelo. And within not that long, they came back and admitted to, I guess, what one of the accounts was Brian Colangelo's, I believe he admitted to, basically one that didn't say anything ever. Yeah. Um, and the curious part, though, is that as soon as one of these accounts, a couple of these accounts were asked about, all of them basically like went silent. And I guess the Eric Jr. one, which is sort of the most interesting one, <laughs> I think now is like unprotected again. But essentially like very strange, you know, indications that that seemingly this one person has to be controlling all these accounts, you know, aside from some of the similarities in takes. And again, not all of them even tweet and it's tweet things, but similarities in takes and then the activity yeah. levels. And like and, uh, I, I was telling you this before. So he, Ben Dietrich, emails the Sixers and shares the names of the two accounts and doesn't say anything about the other three. And that that day gets a follow-up from them and said that, uh, you know, they would ask Colangelo, Colangelo about it. And then uh, he, <laughs> he, he gets a response from them uh, later that day confirming one of them. And the other three go from public to private, essentially taking them offline. And in my head, I was just thinking, like, if if you're Ben Dietrich and you're reporting the story, like, obviously, you make that call, and then the rest of the day, sure, you might be doing your other work, but aren't aren't you just, like, watching those accounts? Like, aren't you watching them <laughs> at all times? And then all of a sudden, to have all three of those other accounts switch from public to private? Like, aren't you just freaking out in your office, like in your cubicle, in the Grantland, or excuse me, in the Ringer, like offices? Like, aren't you like sprinting around, like trying to tell everyone, don't you look like just an insane person for that entire day? I can't even imagine. Yeah. And, and the thing is, so what's not controversial is, you know, Brian Colangelo having a Twitter account, like whatever, right? That's no big deal. The, the big deal is that um, a couple of these accounts, multiple of these accounts, including most notoriously this Eric Jr. and then had some numbers account, had made some very negative, made very negative comments over the past couple of years about a number of Sixer players, including Joel Embiid as recently as like, a, I guess, a year and a half ago, like about after he got injured and claiming like, well, he didn't tell, you know, he didn't tell Sixers doctors. I mean, basically, this is like a very obviously whoever's tweeting this is in the tank for Brian Colangelo in the tank for you know the Sixers current front office and very much against their old front office and there are report that there are multiple references to Jodel Okafor failing physicals to injuries that which had never been reported which haven't been reported um things that you know no GM should talk about publicly let alone you know or, or even be <laughs> tweeting about secretly you know I mean it's just the height, if, if you know, if indeed this is Brian Colangelo, I mean, it's the height of unprofessionalism, right? To be yeah. tweeting about this and encouraging, you know, writers and things like that to challenge Julia Okafor about, like, oh, well, you failed a physical, you should ask him, all this stuff, and sort of these recurring themes, and and you know, again, like, and things about you know, negative things about Hinky maybe aren't surprising, um, but you know, again, at a very at the at the very least is just sort of like pathetic, right? That you're you know, bad mouthing your your predecessor via Twitter, anonymous accounts, right? But the stuff about the players, including like the injuries and things like that, um, you know, there was a like of a suggestion someone made of before the Markel Fultz trade, trading the pick um, 
trading the pick in basically a very similar fashion to what actually ended up happening, yeah. um, which is also amusing. Um, but it just basically sort of like all these like little bits of evidence that on their own, like might not mean much, but just you triangulate all of them and like just the names of the people that these <laughs> accounts followed, like literally, literally following. Yeah. Follows this guy called Lawrence LB Bain. And that person happens to be uh, the president and CEO of a company uh, that Brian Calandrillo sold 25,000 shares of stock in, I believe. Uh, then there's In Arizona. In Arizona. Uh, then there's Holly Miklas, who was in Toronto and who the Colangelos would have gotten close to while he was in Toronto. And then there's, <laughs> there's like, he, he followed four players that were on, Eric Jr., excuse me, not Brian Colangelo. Eric Jr. <laughs> followed four players that were on his son's uh, college basketball team. Uh, then the, at, the, at the University of Chicago, okay? So not, I mean, it's yeah. not like he's following, you know, Kentucky basketball players. He's no. following U Chicago, which I don't even know what division that is, but he's following, you know, Brian Colangelo's son and multiple friends of Brian Colangelo's son and, you know, former <laughs> coaches and just, it, it's just, just like, circumstantial it, it's just all evidence these, is crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. just like all these breadcrumbs of like either, either it is Brian Colangelo or it's someone who is literally like stalking Brian, <laughs> Brian yeah, Colangelo. It would have to be. And I mean, we were just joking before the before we got on here. I mean, the only way out of this is for him to be tell his son or find a nephew or somebody to basically say, hey, man, you got to be my fall guy. You got to say that this is you because it's got to be someone close to him, right? It can't be. I mean, it, it can't be. It wouldn't explain it for it to be some like random Raptor fan or random Sixer fan or whatever, because um, they just wouldn't know all these people wouldn't have no, the insight no to follow all these people and be followed back in some cases by them. The only real explanation would be if it's somebody who literally is in Brian Clangio, if it is Brian Clangio, or I guess maybe someone in his inner circle. Like, if you told me it was his son, I could say, okay, I guess, yeah, I guess that could, sure. could, be, could be it, right? I mean, but again, some of the things are strange. Like, I mean, like literally the only time Brian Clangio has been mentioned by the G League team of the, of the Sixers or the only time that he's been mentioned as being at a game of the Delaware 87ers was the same day that this Twitter account posted something about the jerseys of the 87ers <laughs> needing to be changed. I mean, it's just like literally like it leaves this like geotagged, you know, trail of breadcrumbs that just inevitably leads you to Brian Colangelo, which again is just like, I mean, I don't I don't know. I mean, he he admitted to to the one Twitter account, you know, this afternoon. I think they thought, oh, they're getting ahead of it. Um, like the one that never said anything that was just sort of for observing. They admitted to to using that account and then nothing else. And um, I, yeah, I'm just so fascinated because, I mean, he's been such an interesting character because he's been so reviled by, you know, the the trust, the process side of the of the uh, Sixer fan base. And I mean, if ever there was a way for him to like just reiterate why that that you know large proportion, really everybody in six, everybody who's a Sixers fan at this point should be just like beside themselves at the likelihood that this is him and that he was doing these things. Um, yeah, it's just remarkable, and again, it, it just really underscores sort of what how differently people act when they don't think anybody's going to know who they are, right? I mean, we. The two of us, like, you know, because of kind of like the stuff we do with with writing about the team and we both have been public, quote unquote, public figures on Twitter forever. So I don't really even know. I I never was anonymous on Twitter, so I can't really speak to what 
what that was like or is like. Um, but you know, I mean, we see it in our mentions. I mean, for the most part, people are very nice to me. I, I don't really have big complaints about Twitter. I think Twitter is bad in many cases. I think my followers are generally pretty great. Um, but yeah, it's, it's fascinating, you know, like it, it really does shine a light on this idea of how people use social media and the pitfalls of thinking you're anonymous when man, I, I don't think Brian Clansville is anonymous anymore about this. No, and it is, yeah, like that cloak of anonymity, right? Like it just kind of gives people a freedom that uh, they think they have because no one will ever find out what they're posting or doing. And I, it is honestly just, <laughs> just I, I'm struggling to actually uh, comprehend any of this. And uh, as as I said, like this as you go through it, you just keep thinking to yourself like this cannot be real. And it does again, appear to be real. Like all of this circumstantial evidence just keeps piling up. And it's just, it, it, you struggle to think that someone could be that stupid, but at the same time, if you think no one's ever going to figure out that Eric jr. Followed by eight numbers is an NBA GM, well, I guess I think maybe you'd believe you could get away with it, and it, it's just kind of a, an unbelievable thing. I I truly don't have many higher level level thoughts than you know, like this is to me kind of some of the some of the bad things that can happen with Twitter when people are posting anonymously, like. You, not only can it be toxic for other people, and uh, you can kind of flame the f- I guess fan the flames of other bad conversations and toxic conversations that occur all the time on Twitter and really make dis- divisive issues you can also get yourself in some trouble if somehow some way someone's able to track it back to you and it appears that's exactly what's happened in this case <laughs> yeah and I mean it, it's funny like some of the tweets that that you know have been uncovered you know, like somebody making, you know, just somebody randomly making fun of Brian Colangelo's uh, collars, which again, if you're, if you're like deep into NBA minutia, you may be aware that like Brian Colangelo has long had this thing for these Italian, expensive Italian shirts with these really huge collars. And, you know, somebody like made fun of him and, you know, and, and of course this Eric Jr. account just pops up out of nowhere. And <laughs> like, it clearly was very offended by making fun of Brian, Brian Colangelo's collars. I mean, it, it's just a remarkable spotlight on something that again i i you know we were talking earlier like the only after i realized that you know I, after i ruled out that this is an april fool's joke the only thing I, else i could think of that was like similar like off the top of my head that kind of reminded me of this i mean obviously people are going to talk about like the kevin durant burner accounts but like that was pretty harmless you know in general like i mean it was totally lame like you're yeah, a lame human lame. being kevin durant if you're doing that but yes pretty yeah, harmless it's pretty harmless, right? I mean, he's basically just like half half ass sort of bad mouthing like, you know, his support former supporting cast, right? I mean, like, yeah, okay, yeah. whatever. It's fine. But to be like first off, like it's one thing to be like a, a player, you know, who's like under thirty years old and doing this stuff. It's like another if you're, you know, a fifty whatever year old general manager of a basketball team and, you know, you're literally revealing injury information like you know violating potentially like i'm not obviously like privacy were like your nda clearly but but revealing things that like teams are not supposed to reveal under any circumstances like injuries things like that so 
I, I don't know. I'm just I'm just so fascinated to see where this leads. Um, I'm I, I you know again I, apologies to everybody who has no interest in the story. I just find it so fascinating um, because again I I. The only thing I mean, like, again, the Durant thing is sort of like a similar idea, but just sort of like amp to like, you know, to 11 to borrow a spinal tap phrase. Um, <laughs> the other the other like crazy stuff, the other story I thought of immediately when I was trying to figure out like what what is the equivalent of this was when I guess I think it was Deadspin published years ago that Manti Teo um, fake girlfriend story about mm-hmm. the Notre Dame linebacker, which was just like a totally wild and, you know, crazy expose and just such a bizarre such a bizarre story that like you couldn't figure out like what like is this real like yeah. so I, I, again like I, we'll see kind of where this goes from here but I mean again like they you know the way that they kind of asked about the the couple of Twitter accounts and had him cop to one and then the others you know seemingly like follow at that suit. moment how how could I mean, it be anything was, else that was the that was the honeypot I guess uh, <sighs> you know they they really set the trap and. Um, yeah, like I said, I if I'm if I'm uh, you know uh, the shunned uh, unpopular nephew of Brian Colangelo right now, I'm saying, yo, five hundred grand in a Ferrari, I'll be your guy. Tell me what I need. Tell me what you need me to say. I'll I'll claim. I'll put my hands on. I'll say it was me. You know, being your your nephew who adores you and all that. Um, because other than the son or family member just taking the fall, which you know, again, like. Some of this stuff, like I, I can't even, I don't, I don't think it's anybody but him. You know, I, there, there, what, what, there was the, there was the stuff about the 2008 Olympics, like this Eric Jr. thing complained about Dwayne Wade and and Gabriel Union yeah. doing something at the 2008 Olympics in Beijing, like like he was there, and you know, again, like they weren't able to confirm that Colangelo was there, but he was part of the advisory committee of the 2008 <laughs> Olympic team, and his dad is, you know, was famously kind of ran that team, so very very possible that he was there and just just crazy though right because i mean the the level of like bad judgment is is insane to 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 be in this spot this this can't be real but this is the most nba story in the history of nba stories right like every every time you think there's downtime in the nba every time you think that we're not going to talk about something in the nba there's off days there's time in between the draft and free agency free agency is kind of slow whatever it is like there is just a crazy story and again it just (laughs) it just happened again like i we'll see we will see exactly where this goes but man that is just kind of it's crazy that's all i have it's crazy um all right, let's. Uh, unless you have anything else, you want to move to some some real news of the day? Is is that okay? I guess we can do real news. We can do non sixer real news. <laughs> I still can't believe this. Um, also, the the memes that are coming out of this, the internet is too good. FYI, um, you know, there's the the fire dog that is just like sitting in the fire, like this is fine. Uh, <laughs> this is a normal collar with a seventy sixers hat on and him collared. It's perfect. Oh my gosh! All right, sorry. Um, keep keep it up, internet. Uh, but this was happening as we were getting ready to record, so we definitely needed to talk about it. Um, all right. So news of the day, or you know, some kind of news of the day. Uh, Chris Vivlamore of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution 
stumbled upon the Bucks video of uh, Coach Boonholzer's first interview with them, um, and in it there was a little bit of footage from uh, Boonholzer's first pitch. In it, uh, there was a couple people accompanying him to uh, the mound and hanging out with them as they were, you know, getting ready to introduce him and. Some people on Twitter had told me this last week, but I didn't know either of them well enough to get the quick screenshots and know that it was these people. Um, but Chris said that in the video, there's a scene where uh, he's at the at the baseball game and he is accompanied on field by Charles Lee and Ben Sullivan, two of the Hawks' assistants. Um, so another strong indicator that uh, they may join him in Milwaukee. And... Uh, if you remember all of this correctly, uh, on that day or on the day of his introductory press conference, same day they threw out the first pitch, uh, I'd asked about, you know, player development and kind of how you try to get that going. So with so little time and a late start date, and he was talking about how they've already been talking about it. And that was the first thing that they talked about at, as soon as they were getting ready for the introductory presser, like that was the first thing that they talked about is they were making things official. And uh, in there, there was a sense where Boonholder said, we've been in a big conference room with Troy Flanagan and the medical group and some of John's front office group and some of my group that we're hopeful will be here. Um, and at the time, both of us were like, huh, okay. So there must be someone there. Um, and we were trying to figure out who those people might be. And it turns out that it might have been Charles Lee and Ben Sullivan. And if you also remember my list from Twitter and also from one of the episodes last week, I'd mentioned that the coaches that were in Atlanta last season would have been Darvin Ham, who had been five years in Atlanta, Bud's lead assistant, Taylor Jenkins, five years in Atlanta, just uh, I was his next most senior uh, assistant on the bench. And then Lee and Sullivan were next in that area. Um, and again, if you want to learn more about them, there's that New York Times story about their player development and vitamins and all of the the Hawks University kind of stuff that you can read about, but those guys are both mentioned in there. So um, again, we don't we don't have answers, and I'm not going to tell you when we're going to get answers on this because I don't really know. Um, but for now, uh, a little a little bit more information, I suppose. Yeah, we'll see. Um, and uh, again, you know, Darvin Ham certainly a guy. I mean, it feels like given that he didn't get the Atlanta job, he was interviewed for the head coaching job in Atlanta, which went to Lloyd Pierce. Um, but, you know, Darvin presumably would be, I think, the the number one option for the top assistant job in Milwaukee. Uh, and obviously he has, you know, a lot of ties to Milwaukee and I think by all accounts enjoyed his time here. So certainly, um, you know, he's a guy that, that you would hope would, would also be part of that package, even if he was not uh, necessarily at the at the game. You know, may, maybe they thought Darvin was too, too risky a guy because people <laughs> would recognize him. Um, yeah. You know, if you go into a brewer game, people would uh, people would recognize Darvin. But uh, yeah, I guess we'll we'll see kind of how that goes. And um, you know, again, we, we mentioned there's not a lot of transparency right now into the um, the draft workout process. Um, I think if I'm sure you know, we'll mention if if kind of bigger name guys, you know, potential first round picks come through. I don't know if we've really had any kind of obvious you know high profile guys come through at this point. Um, but, uh, you know, again, certainly with, with where the bucks are at 17, it's, it's also, 
a little bit of a weird spot because, you know, you're in that kind of dead zone where a lot of guys who want to be in the lottery maybe don't want to work out for teams later uh, in the first round. And so you end up kind of maybe working on a lot of guys who, who maybe aren't the, the really high profile guys. So we'll kind of see uh, see how that goes, obviously, just for for in general, though, as you mentioned, the workout stuff as well as or sorry, the, the um, you know, player development stuff as well as obviously draft workouts. I'm sure the uh, the impetus is obviously to get this stuff sorted out so you can have your your full staff working with the team day to day for for draft prep for development prep all that stuff all right um before i guess we're going to talk a little bit about the rockets and kind of some of the the takery that's been going on around them but before we do that uh, i just wanted to say that joel Embiid has now tweeted and he tweeted a picture of himself from draft night looking unconcerned as he hasn't been picked with one word bruh in all caps um which is <laughs> which is just perfect um so god the rest of this night is gonna be fun on twitter So one of the things that came out of Rockets Warriors Game 7 was the Rockets missing 27 consecutive threes. 27. The Bucks didn't shoot 27 threes on most nights, and the Rockets (laughs) somehow managed to miss 27 straight during Game 7 of the Western Conference Finals. And from that, it, it just felt like everyone had to you know find a way to get a takeoff you know ever that that's where we're at right like that's why twitter exists that's why eric jr exists like you gotta get some takes <laughs> off so find a way to do it and from that the the kind of the big thing that occurred was the rockets should have stopped taking those threes and they should have found a way to you know get in rhythm in another way, if that means taking a couple of steps in, if that means getting to the basket more, like they needed to find a way to get rhythm another way. And I thought you had one of the more one of the more logical takes, I thought, on Twitter. And I was just gonna I'm just gonna toss it to you. Uh, you know, what did what did you think of of those takes? Well, I, I mean, again, I, I viewed it, and again, I'm viewing it from the perspective of somebody who's watched the Rockets all year, who who wanted the Rockets to win, who you know has. Uh, family members uh who i would have wanted rather prefer to see happy rather than sad after the rockets lost um but i mean you look at this team this team is you know you wrote a great article for espn milwaukee about or espn wisconsin which was it espn milwaukee espn it was on espn wisconsin.com espn wisconsin.com about how the teams in the final four of the nba for the most part had very clear identities of what they were and i don't think any team has as clear an identity as as the Rockets. I mean, they they played in these playoffs offensively and defensively exactly how they played all year. Yeah. Defensively, they switched everything. They used, you know, again, like this has historically not been a team that you thought of as a great defensive team, but they became a ton better this year. And we've talked about all year long, you brought up often, you don't become good at switching by just deciding one day that you're going to start switching. You become good at switching by practicing it. And, yeah. you know, working on it and making it a you know a core part of your your system and that's what the rockets did under jeff bizdelic their assistant coach and you know they improved all the way from i think 18th to 6th defensively and they put the clamps on the warriors in ways that 
I mean, I don't know if any team has defended them. Maybe again, maybe that OKC team a couple years ago. Um, but that team didn't. That that team had KD on it in OKC. That didn't. They didn't have to defend Kevin Durant with the rest of the Warriors, whereas the Rockets didn't have that benefit. So, I, I think what we saw from them this this postseason, and again, we'll talk about the threes here. Um, but this was a team that, if any team knew what they were and was consistent in how they applied it. It is this Rockets team. And and it's not just consistency of like, you know, roles and things like that. I mean, Mike D'Antoni's big thing, the thing that you always hear people talk about is he empowers players. Take your shot. Shoot your shot. You know, don't look over your shoulder at the bench because you're going to get a hook because, oh, you rushed a three up, right? The whole point is that D'Antoni gets his teams to score tons of points and gets them to be these, you know, these offenses that just pile up points. And he did it in Phoenix. And now he's doing it in kind of different ways in 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 uh houston by giving them confidence to take the shots they want to take but again he wants them to take certain shots and chris paul maybe has been a bit of an exception because chris paul's game is so mid-range based which runs a bit you know against the grain certainly of what houston has done historically the last few years um but they have you know more and more every year shot more threes and they you know the rockets and warriors this year had the exact same offensive rating they're the two best offensive teams in the league and I mean, to me, that is a great statement of what a team can do when they have a great identity because nobody's going to look at the Warriors and say, oh, well, they had to have a better system than the Warriors because they have less talent than – or they had a, the Warriors have to have a better system than the Rockets because clearly the Rockets have more talent. No, we know who has more talent, right? Yep. The Rockets, though, know what they are. They fit well together. Guys play their roles. And, again, part of that is everybody having a green light. And last night they start really well. And then shots just just start clanking. And, and you know, we've talked about in the past, one of the advantages of taking lots of threes is that, in theory, you, you create a big enough sample that you're, you're not going to run into one of these crazy cold streaks. Well, that's not what happened in game, <laughs> game seven. Um, you know, they literally had a historically bad cold streak. And if not for Chris Paul being injured and... A literally the worst cold streak from three-point range that any team has had in the history of the NBA. It's very possible that the Rockets are in the NBA Finals having just pulled off one of the biggest upsets. And again, I, I don't want to say biggest upsets in the sense that the Rockets are not good, but in terms of like a you know, has there been a better team than the Rock than the Warriors that has lost? Um, I mean, you could say the '73 win Warriors team, but that that team didn't have Kevin Durant. You know, yeah. that team had Harrison Barnes rather than Kevin Durant. So I, I'd say. Arguably, this this would have been the most talented team to ever lose <laughs> a playoff series, and yet I, it seems like a lot of people are saying, "Well, the war, the Rockets should have stopped shooting threes. They should have taken more, I don't know, mid range jumpers and layups." I mean, did you see what was happening when they tried to drive to the rim? I mean, they were getting crushed, and in many cases, not getting foul calls um, for for a number of stretches. And at the end of the game, I mean, the Rockets had a fifty six to twenty eight advantage in paint points. I mean, it's not like they literally just missed a million threes and didn't take any shots inside i mean they they actually did get to the rim a lot but unfortunately it was just a historically bad shooting night from a team that historically has been great at shooting and to be honest like if you're gonna lose to me that's how you lose lose doing the things that got you to where you got you know got got you to these great heights and be true to yourself and don't expect that like what you're going to suddenly start to shoot mid-range jumpers and that's going to be some panacea because like you couldn't make three so go take shots that you don't normally take which are not layups and those are going to go in i mean again this is just to me seems like 
total like second guessing results driven sort of viewpoint right like to me yeah. the process of what they did was correct they took so many open shots that they missed well <laughs> you you want them to you know like is that really you're gonna put trevor reza out there and he's gonna stop shooting open threes like like all of a sudden in game seven of the finals he's supposed to stop shooting threes um eric gordon's supposed to stop shooting open threes james harden's supposed to stop shooting threes i mean again to me like these are your guys this is how you did it all year and shoot your shot and if you lose that way you live with it and I guess kind of what's interesting to me in all of this is when you look at this series, and and I think when you look at this playoff to some extent, you saw the the reins kind of loosen on Chris Paul. You saw him uh, be able to take even more mid range shoppers. He's he's a mid range killer, but I thought in the playoffs, Mike D'Antoni made that adjustment. He he kind of said, okay. Sometimes we're just going to need a bucket, and you know if that ends up being a mid-range jumper for you, Chris, like that's totally fine. We saw James Harden at throughout the start of this game. How many of those lefty floaters did he throw in? Like he was hitting those shorter shots, and when you like that adjustment was in my mind sort of already made, and then as you go go down uh, their pecking order, like Plan A is what give James Harden the ball and let him cook right like that's that's plan a plan b give chris paul the ball let him cook plan c get an open three for one of those guys plan d get the ball to capella in the pick and roll like all of those things as you as you, you take out chris paul like that was supposed to be the, <laughs> that that's supposed to be your zig to your zag like you're always thinking all right james harden he's the guy that got us here last year and he just got too tired down the stretch he had to dribble too much he had to work too hard and he got tired down the stretch so let's get him someone that can handle that well chris paul was that guy and you do it with chris paul so then all of a sudden in game six and game seven you're supposed to dream up a brand new strategy like that's not how the NBA works. <laughs> At that point, you, you don't you don't get to dream up a brand new strategy. And even if you did, how is that strategy going to work when you don't have one of your best creators on the floor? Like the best thing that you can do is try to turn Eric Gordon into a creator. And you know what? That sort of worked. Uh, they made that adjustment, and it sort of worked, which is, uh, I think, a bigger win than you could ever expect it in Game Six and Game Seven. I think I would have thought put Eric Gordon in the Chris Paul role, that is going to fail and fail spectacularly. And it did not. So they did make some adjustments and they did sort of work. And then there's only so much more you can do. Cause at that point, your third playmaker is Trevor Reza. Okay. Trevor Reza play like Eric Gordon. Ooh, I don't think that's going to work. And then all yeah. of a sudden PJ Tucker, you're supposed to drive to the basket. I don't think that's going to work. And this isn't even mentioning that Luke R Richard Bamute was out. Like, he was one of those guys that was helping with all these things. And I don't know. Like, it was just, it's such a strange reaction to me uh, to see this because, as, as, as you mentioned, I wrote about it at ESPN Wisconsin uh, last week. By this point in the playoffs, you know who you are and you are are who you are and you are where you are because of who you are like, all, that that is exactly what's happening like you know your identity you know how you win games and you execute that stuff 
again and again and again and again. And that's what you're playing to. You're playing to your strengths. And then, uh, I don't know, it was just such a strange reaction to me. And it just, uh, I, don't, I don't know, it was just, it was weird for me to see, have it be so visceral when this team should have beat the Golden State Warriors in a seven-game series if Chris Paul stays healthy. Yeah. Like that should have happened. The the best team that we believe we've ever seen assembled, certainly uh I would say during my lifetime, I think this is the best team ever assembled. They should have beat them if it wasn't for an injury to Chris Paul. I and you want them to change? Like how does that make any sense? Yeah, and it again, it all those misses really came down to three guys. You know, Harden uh Gordon and Ariza were the guys who missed basically all the threes. I mean, PJ Tucker was two out of five. I think Gerald Green was one for four. I mean, nobody really else even took many threes, but that, those three guys were what, like three or four for 34 or something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, it was it was basically three guys who, who essentially missed <laughs> all the shots. Um, and guess what? Guess who? Guess who are the guys who you know took basically all the threes for the Rockets this year? Um, I mean, other than Chris Paul, who was out. Uh, you know, Ariza, Gordon, Harden. Those are your guys who bomb threes. I mean, those are guys who play the most minutes that that take lots of threes. So, yeah, it, it's just um, it, it's kind of hard to to me. It, it's just kind of like I don't know. I don't know how you just sort of undo that and expect that like oh that that's going to solve your problem. I think um, you know again like your your shooter shoot and um, you know and the thing is too they if they had come out and missed like their first 15 threes or something like that, and they were down and, you know, they had to kind of think of something else and maybe it'd make a little bit more sense to me, but it's not like they started off poorly. Right. I mean, they should have had confidence kind of second quarter when they're building their lead and everything's fine. Um, and even with, you know, even though they started getting cold in the second quarter, I mean, they still led by 11 at halftime. So, um, yeah, I, I just think again, like you kind of play your game and, um, you know, I think, the, the Sixers or this, the Rockets know their game more be, better than anyone. Right. And they're yeah. not trying to be anybody, but who they are. And, um, you know, again, if it just so happens that, you know, you're too tired or whatever to, to come to, to be able to deliver on that in game seven, that, that sucks. I think the Chris Paul piece is a big story. I think, I mean, I think you can certainly say, you know, if you want to criticize Mike D'Antoni, we can say, why was Ryan Anderson out there suddenly yep. when we know he can't defend anybody on this Warriors team? I mean, he was a minus 12 in like eight minutes or something like that. Um, Steph cooked him a couple times, you know, probably a few times really badly. And uh, again, like Bamute not playing at all. He's obviously been a shell of himself offensively, but at least defensively, he's infinitely better than Ryan Anderson. So I think if you're going to criticize D'Antoni, it's for going to guys and doing things that, that really hadn't been part of, of what they were doing recently, right? I mean, uh, yeah, and I like I think in-game criticisms of Mike D'Antoni and how he reacts to things, I think have been valid for a long time, right? Like I, I think he's incredible at teaching a system and incredible at teaching philosophy and finding a team's identity. That I think he does that better than anyone. So that was why I was so surprised to see that be the thing that people were picking on. Like I don't think you can question. <laughs> that like that that to me that's not a thing that he does poorly in game stuff yeah sometimes he is slow to you know make the right adjustments and 
think up the right way to take away something that the other team is doing or, you know, putting in the right lineup. Like, those are things I think he struggles with. But philosophy and trying to figure out exactly how you want your team to play, I don't think that's something he ever struggles with. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, by the way, uh, in in the live coverage oh, of, so uh, good. Of, oh. of Sixer Gate, um, Joel Embiid has just tweeted. This is from Joel Embiid himself. He says, Joel just told me that Sam Hinkie is better and smarter than you. And then he added um, Alvic, uh, a bunch of numbers, which is the Eric Jr. account. And then he hashtagged at Burner account. So <laughs> jo- Joel Embiid putting, uh, putting this random uh, Ryan Colangelo, most likely Twitter account, in his crosshairs. Um, and it should be noticed as well that that, that, um, that Twitter account, the Eric Jr. one that said all the incendiary stuff, hasn't tweeted in basically a year. So, you know, again, Brian Colangelo may have thought like, oh, like maybe have, may have come to his senses and sort of said, okay, I got to stop doing this, but left it out there. And yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, oh, my gosh. It's so good. All right. I think that is going to be. That's it. I think that's it for us for tonight. Um, I wish I could sit here and update this uh, the rest of the night as more insane tweets come in. Because uh, if there's one thing I know about Joel Embiid, he is more than ready to send those out. Uh, but that's where we're going to have to leave you for tonight. We'll see what the fallout is from all of this tomorrow. Um, we'll see if this affects anything else. If I mean, does Brian C- Colangelo get fired for this? Like, is, <laughs> is there. I mean, this is like he leaked some really crazy stuff, like some really bad things, and did some entreated player information in a way that I don't think you'd want any of your executives to. But also, I don't know that you can prove that it was him. So this is just a crazy. I mean, story. I mean, it really comes down to like when when Brian Colangelo shows up at work tomorrow, the day after, however long Brian Colangelo is is employed by the Sixers. I mean, does he have any credibility left, right? How I mean, if Joel Embiid now thinks, F this guy, he was taking shots at me on Twitter under a burner account last year. Um, I mean, how do you reconcile How do you reconcile having that guy be your GM, right? I mean, it's just, it's a yep. crazy situation, right? I mean, because again, it's not like, you know, Brank Lange is some like random guy who sits in a cube and just sort of like, pounds out code or something like that like he's the general manager he's the head of basketball operations <laughs> he's the leader of this team from a basketball standpoint and this is a team that is absolutely you know has has championship ambitions and brian colangelo also is not a guy who has some you know spotless track record right i mean the fultz trade is his biggest move since joining the sixers obviously some of the smaller moves like um you know getting Elisova and Bellinelli, um, you know, even the the Red, the JJ Redick one year deal. I mean, obviously a lot of those moves I think were good moves, but um, by the same token, man, I don't. How do you how do you look people in the eye after you know if if uh, unless you somehow convince people that you didn't do this and you have some you know watertight alibi? But again, I, I'd be shocked if he can really convince people that this wasn't him, right? Yeah. Um, even, and- even if even if ownership believes it wasn't him. Is the rest of the organization, beginning with Joel Embiid, going to be like, nah, it's BS? Yeah, I mean, Chris Towers from CBS just tweeted this out. Either the GM of the 76ers uses burner accounts to criticize his players, or the 76ers best player just roasted his GM on Twitter over an inac- inaccurate story. <laughs> like, 
There's at this point because of that tweet Joel just sent out. There are only two options. Like those are the only two things yeah. that one of those things has to be true, and this is just totally insane. All right, man, man, we thought the Bucks drama last year with their GM was right was was, uh, was crazy. I mean, this is uh, yeah, I, I'm. We're we're gonna. Ha- I'm sorry, guys. For any of you who's like, screw this. This is locked on box, not locked on madness in too Philadelphia. Crazy. I apologize. It's too crazy. Um, but it, this is too much fun. It's the summer. We're we're, we're gonna have to keep paying attention to this. <laughs> All right, that's gonna be it for us. For Frank Madden, I'm Eric Name, not Eric Junior. I'm Eric Name. <laughs> Eric, <laughs> your name. <laughs> this is locked on box. We'll talk to you tomorrow.